You have in your uh, bulletins there an outline. I want you to pull out that outline and see if we can't follow along with some of the ideas and thoughts that it gives us as we prepare ourselves to share in the Lord's Supper here, this time of communion. So we got to enjoy baptism, and that was a fun time. Wasn't that incredible? Watch that transformation. You get to see that take place. And later on, we're going to all together share in this special time of communion. But we need to prepare ourselves in an understanding of what it means to share in this special time. And predominantly what it means is a recognition of who Jesus was, what he did, and how it applies uh, to each one of us. I don't know if you got Sunday paper yet today. I went, it's a, I got a little shot. It says, Gaza attack widens. You know, people always ask me, they say, Pastor, um, how do you know when God is moving in particular ways and big things are about to happen? Watch Israel, watch what's taking place in the Middle East, and you'll begin to recognize that God's getting ready to do something significant. Usually, in my experience, I've only got some 40 plus years in terms of understanding what God is doing. I found that God tends to work with specific dates. So we have Hanukkah coming up. So if I was you, I'd, take a, I'd be looking closely at Hanukkah and seeing if God doesn't do something truly spectacular at this time. Now, we may not have to worry about anything. You just choose to come back and it's all done. <laughs> but something significant is going to happen here soon. Anytime you see these things happening. Now, the other side kind of tells us about the world. It says, using Twinkies to fill your wallet. Oh, boy. See, that's the two sides of life. The fluff side of life and the faith side of life. And when we look at the faith side of life, we need to understand what it is that God is trying to say to us and speak to us in specific areas. So looking at that outline, one of the things I've noticed over and over in life is God desires to speak to us specifically through his word, clarifying his direction to our life. Now, we've been talking about a lot of different things over the last five weeks. Uh, We talked about everything as a beginning and that God is the beginning of everything. And then we discussed about why should we trust the Bible and and why is there evil? Why is the world so messed up? And today what I want to talk about is something that I get hit with a lot and that's this. Why is Christianity so exclusive? Why is it so intolerant? Why do we have to hold on to this archaic, ancient, weird idea that Jesus is the only way for people to develop a relationship with God. What I find out in life, especially in America, is we have this buffet religion thing going on. We're all into buffets. And what we want to do is we want to take a little bit of Buddhism and a touch of Muslim and a little bit of Christianity over here and throw in a little Dr. Phil... Because he's kind of fun and action-oriented, you know, he's got to tell it like it is. And then maybe Oprah on the side, okay. sweeten things up a little bit. And we put it all together and we say, wow, I am such a tolerant person. I love everybody and everything, and we're all going to go to heaven together. And I think that is such a wonderful idea, as false as it is. Because we all would desire somehow for everything just to, just to become good. Don't worry, be happy. Okay? Great song, terrible theology. 
But the picture is this thought or idea is that somehow everything should just be done in such a way that everybody ends up okay and we all end up with God in this happy place together in heaven. But God Himself recognized that that wasn't going to happen and therefore He did something about it. He sent His one and only Son to tell us what was going on and what had to happen. And the unfortunate thing that we discovered is Jesus is not a buffet kind of Lord. He just doesn't have that buffet mentality. He's very, very clear and cut and dry. He says, in order for you to experience life, you have to experience me. Uh, do you remember John the Baptist, kind of the weird old guy in early in the, in the Bible? He was, had all these weird belts. And he was eating locusts and honey and doing all this kind of off-the-wall stuff. And hundreds, even thousands of people were coming being baptized by him. And Jesus honors him and says, this is the one who came before me. Well, John's in prison, and he's, like us, concerned. He's thinking, well, Lord, what's going on? I just had a simple question. And here's this question. It's, it's the first one that you have here. In fact, I think we even have it on the slide. It says, are you the one... Jesus, are you the one who was to come? Or should we expect somebody else? And if you got your outlines, you need to circle, are you the one? It sounds like Matrix, doesn't it? Well, the reason that show was such a great show in terms of its presentation is because it was just presenting the gospel just in an obscure way that nobody really knew what was going on. We just responded to it because our spirits were saying, there is a one who can save the world, who has the ability to bring us into relationship with God, and his name is Jesus. Jesus responds. He doesn't just say, yes, I'm the one. He says, and you could go to that little section there in Matthew later on, and I encourage you to do that after the service. Maybe sit down with your kids. And he says, well, the deaf hear... The blind see, the lame are healed, and the dead rise. Yeah, I'm the one. You see, he doesn't just say he's the one. He proved he was the one. Over and over and over, he proved who he is by what he did. In fact, his life declared God's one singular purpose for him. See, the life of Jesus, when you look at it, shows us God's purpose. It was Jesus' calling to come to earth to intentionally die so that we could live. I killed Jesus on the cross, and you killed Jesus on the cross. In order that you might be able to have life. Because if he doesn't die... All of us do. All of us do. And none of us has an opportunity to have a relationship with God the Father that we talked about here in this baptismal process. We're all stuck. We're all stuck in our sin. Jesus even goes on to say when he finds himself in a position where they're getting ready to do these trials and crucify him, he says this, No one can kill me without my consent. I lay down my life voluntarily. For I have the right and I have the power to lay it down when I want to. 
And I also have the right and the power to take it up again. For the Father has given me this right. You see, Jesus knew in advance exactly what was going to happen. That's why in the Garden of Gethsemane you see him poured out in tears and struggles and sweat and blood itself as he prepares himself for taking upon the sins of the entire world. And he understands what's coming. And it's incredibly difficult for him to accept it. But he understands this is my purpose. He said, I did not come to judge the world. I came to save the world. So I say, Father, save me from this agony. Save me from this time. Oh no, he said, I embrace this time. I embrace this purpose as difficult as it is and as horrible as it will be. And then he begins to go off on six different trials. Three Jewish trials and three Gentile trials. Each one of which will display to everyone who is listening and involved that he is innocent of all charges. That he's done nothing wrong. Or as Pilate would say, I find no fault. I find no fault in him. Until Jesus himself says, oh, come on, you guys, will you just ask the right question? And finally, Caiaphas says, are you the son of God? And Jesus says, well, golly, did you just figure that out? Isn't it obvious? Haven't I said it over and over and over again? In fact, the next time you see me, I'll be coming in on the clouds and bringing judgment to the entire world. And Caiaphas goes, blasphemy! Jesus says, well, that's one way to look at it. And the process starts taking place by which he will give his life for all of mankind. Yes, I am God. Now, you see, that changes the issue a little bit, doesn't it? If before you talked about, well, Jesus is an ethical, moral teacher who shares truth to us in such a way that we can live life out loving one another. No, Jesus said, and by the way, I'm God. And you go, he's whacked. He's crazy. Or is he? Jesus reveals himself to us that my purpose in coming was to save the world, to die for you so that you would not have to live without a relationship with God and die in your sin. He claims to be the one and the only Savior of the world. And that's why he puts himself on trial. That's why Paul says later, Christ was truly God. He gave up everything. He became a slave when he became like one of us. He died on the cross and God gave him the highest place and honored his name above all others. You could circle that verse there. Above all others. So at the name of Jesus, everyone, you could circle that, everyone will bow. Every knee will bow. Everyone will yield to him and declare him as Lord in heaven and in earth. Everyone will. The question is not, will you? The question is, when will you? When will you? Everyone will acknowledge him. Jesus' life right up to his trial shows over and over and over again that he is the one and only son of God who came for one purpose. And that purpose was to deal with sin's power and to save us from death. To deal with sin's power 
and to save us from death. I want you to say that with me. To deal with sin's power and to save us from death. That's Jesus' purpose. That was it. One singular purpose. But his death declares God's love, his passion for each one of us. It demonstrates to what length God was willing to go in order to get us into heaven. The Bible says, while we were utterly helpless, while we were bound for hell without any hope, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. God shows his great love by sending his son to die for us. Why did Jesus have to die? Because of you. Because of you. Because of you. How many of you have ever lied? Let me see your hands. How many have ever lied? Okay. Hmm. Trying to think of another good question. How many of you ever stolen anything? Stole anything? Okay, good. How many of you have ever lusted after someone else's wife? Don't raise your hand. Don't. Okay. Look around you, folks. Look around you. What you see is a place full of liars, adulterers, and thieves. And we're the good guys. Jesus died to take care of my sin. And he showed God's wondrous love towards me that not only would he die for me, but he'd show me how to live for him. He showed me the next step in life. Because I began to recognize early on that if you do the crime, you've got to do the time. Unless somebody else does it for you. And Jesus said, I'll do it for you, but you have to accept my gift. See, all cosmic justice demands that sin be punished by death. It's the law of gravity in the world. There is no choice. God can say, you know, that one we'll just forget about. God says, I can't do that. I am a holy God. I have no choice. Just as everything has its beginning in me, so sin must make payment for it. Somebody has to pay. And I will send my only son to do just that. So Jesus dies, stretches out his arms on the cross and says, It is finished. After he goes through all this excruciating death, and by the way, the word excruciating means out of the cross. After he goes through this excruciating death, gives everything that he has to give. And somebody asked me, why did it have to be so brutal? Because sin and evil is always brutal. And he gave himself over to sin and evil. And when they step in, they do things that are so unbelievable that we can't believe it. That's why it's called unbelievable. Huh? There's a reason why we did not think the Holocaust was taking place. We said, nobody would do that. Nobody is that evil. Nobody. And then we found out, oh, but they were that evil. That men are that evil. That sin will do whatever it needs to do. And more. And that's why Jesus died. And he says on the cross, it is finished. Not I have finished, but it is finished. All the payment 
has been made. In fact, the word teletelestai, which is translated finished here, literally means paid for. It's a stamp that they would put after you paid in full a particular debt. The stamp would be teletelestai. If you were let out of prison and you're given a statement saying he's paid his sentence, they would stamp it teletelestai. Jesus said, it's finished. I paid it all. It's done. You need pay no more. You are a free person. Christ sacrificed his life and gave his blood to set us free. And that means your sins are now forgiven. Christ set us free. Can you say that? Say, Christ set us free. And that's the key. We begin to act upon, by faith, that reality, and we begin to experience it in our own life. Let me ask you this. If there had been another way than this for God to give His one and only Son to put Him to death in such a horrible way, if there was another way, don't you think God would have come up with it? Of course. If there was some other option, oh, let's go to plan C, God. And God says there is no plan C. There's no plan B. There's only one option. The one must die for the many. There is no other way to get into heaven. And that's why Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. He wasn't being arrogant. He was just trying to show you the way. If there was another one, he would have said, you know, by the way, Buddha, he's a good guy too. Dr. Phil, just follow the directives. Jesus said, sorry, I'm the only way. There is no other. The amazing thing is not only does Jesus die for us and take care of our sins and issue in terms of his purpose, not only does he begin to display his love for us by choosing to give everything so that we can have something, but then the next thing is his resurrection declares the very power of God to change our lives, to transform us into the likeness of Jesus himself, to begin to be able to live life in such a way that we're actually accomplishing purpose. We're actually able to love others. We're able to experience faith and hope and love and, and real meaning. That's what his resurrection accomplished it's an amazing opportunity that each of us have as we respond to Him. We look at this time of communion. And what we're declaring is that I've been set free and I now have the ability by the power of the Holy Spirit to be transformed. I love it how they put Jesus' body in a tomb and then they send guards to check Him out. When's the last time you heard somebody checking out to make sure nobody comes out of the grave? Oh, let's make sure they don't get out. That... How crazy. God set that up because he wanted to make sure nobody was mistaken. That Jesus rose from the dead and provided us power. For 40 days he appears to all the apostles and over 500 different people. Over and over and over. He shares with them. He talks with them. He clarifies the Bible. He does so much stuff with them. By the time that Peter gets ready to stand up in the book of Acts and declare to the people, they're ready. They're all going, what is happening? Who is this Jesus? What do we do? And so when he lays out what Jesus did and how they could respond to him and receive him as Lord and Savior, over 5,000 people in this small town instantly respond and are baptized. How would you like to have 5,000 today? 
good grief. Man, we'd be here till one o'clock yet tomorrow. <laughs> wow. There were huge pools there, and so all the apostles, probably all 120 people, are busy baptizing them one after another, rejoicing over what God has done and what He's going to do, and expecting Jesus to come back that day or the next. Not understanding that God's death was for all of mankind, not just for the Jewish believers. Jesus had told them, they're going to kill me, they're going to put me in a tomb, and three days later, I'm going to come back to life. Some weird reason these guys didn't remember that. Or they chose to disbelieve it. I guess the bottom line is this. How do you respond to the question, is he the one? Because that's where life comes down to. Each of us have to come to that place of response. We say, is he the one? You can say, he is so arrogant. Jesus is so arrogant. Or you can begin to say, no, Jesus was so clear. Because if you look at his life, it's sure not of an arrogant man. It's of a man of incredible humility with unbelievable strength and ability. And he calls us to respond to him. He says, you've got to get the right perspective. There's only one way to get there. There's only one way to get there. I can lie to you all the time and tell you about, oh, well, you can go this way, you can go that way. But there's only one way that he's going to clarify it. People talk about various religious systems and that they all say the same thing. Let me tell you, I'm the pastor, okay? That's a lie. They all say different things. They differ on every issue that is of any meaning. They disagree on who is God. Well, that seems significant, doesn't it? They disagree on where heaven is or isn't. They disagree on the issue of hell. They disagree on the issue of salvation. They disagree on the area of how to live your life. Every single one of the religions around this world are exclusive. Every single one. Hinduism implies that everything is God and God is everything. Not God made everything, but He is everything and everywhere. Sit in that chair, that's God. You're sitting on God. Get up. Oh. <laughs> Oops. Buddhism, in many of its, many of its branches, are, is actually atheistic. It doesn't believe in God at all. You can go on and on with religious systems and the different branches that continue to change. But the fundamental difference between the religions of this world and Christianity are simple. The religions of this world, every single one of them, are always spelled D-O. What does that spell? Do. They're all about what you're going to do in order to become a better person so that God can look at you and say, you're not such a bad guy or gal. Excuse me, woman. My wife taught me you're not supposed to say gal. She's a woman. You go, huh? But Christianity is spelled D-O-N-E. What does that spell? Done. It's all about what God has done for us. It's this miraculous, wondrous, glorious gift that we declare here in communion. We begin to say that his blood was shed for me. His body was broken, was given up for me. And that as I respond to that gift, I get eternal life. And I don't have to do anything. In fact, I'm not allowed to do anything because there's only one way to get there. 
In fact, he will give me the power to be transformed into his likeness. And all he asks of me is to begin to allow that to take place in your life. That's a lot. But that's the cry of Jesus. Let me close with a simple story. In Buddhism, there's a very similar story to the story that's called the prodigal son. How many of you know the prodigal son story? It's a great story, isn't it? Wonderful story. Buddhism have a very similar story. The son take, leaves the father and takes all his goods. He actually steals them, takes off. And he spends all the goods in riotous living. And for a number of years, he lives, he drinks, he gets sexually involved. He does everything you can think of. But he runs out of money. We know that one, right? He runs out of money. <laughs> and he finds himself without anything, and he says, I must go back to my father. And so... The story goes, he goes back to his father, and after he comes in, he falls on his knees before his father, knocking on the door, and the father slowly opens the door, and he begs for his forgiveness, and so his father makes him the slave for the rest of his life. It's true, that story, in Buddhism. How's the story in Christianity go? A lot like that, huh? Only the first part. The first part about the fact that we fall into sin and brokenness and fail and find ourselves responding to a God that we don't expect to respond to us and we cry out and say, Father, I've sinned, I've, I've failed you and you have no reason to forgive me. But if you only, and before we can even finish, we realize because we're practicing the words before the Father gets there, we see our Father running down the trail, literally running down with his arms open wide to grab us and to hold us. And he lifts us up. And we're trying to get out the words, Oh, please forgive me. I can't believe what I've done. How could I have been in this way? And he says, Oh, it's so wonderful to have you home. Of course I forgive you. I love you. Let's celebrate. Wow. There's a little difference there, isn't there? And that's the cry of Jesus Christ. He says, my purpose was to come to this place to provide you with freedom from your sin and to pay the penalty. And I followed with the passion of God himself and loved you so much and shared with you and taught you how to live life, how to experience it, how to re rejoice in it. And I gave you the power to be transformed into my very likeness so that when you take this special time and remember who I am, you can literally become changed. And that's what we do now. I'm going to ask some of my elders to come down. I'm going to ask Eric and Kathy. I want to take one table. Yes. Yes. Yes, he did. So it says, why did Jesus say, Father, why have you forsaken me? Because God himself had to turn his back on sin. He was unable not to because the penalty that Jesus had to receive was literally the removal of God's face from his life. And when he took upon sin, he died completely, thoroughly, abjectly and gave up his life, said it is finished. And once it was finished, once he had done it all, he had become the Lamb of God. Then God was able to turn back around and gather him in and bring him back from the dead three days later. And that's the glorious story. One more time. Isn't it great? It's the same story. But in this case, it wasn't the prodigal son. It was the son of God himself. 
who gave his life for us, never did anything wrong, but chose to pay the penalty for our sin. As we finish this time together, I just encourage you, come down, take a bit of bread, a little juice, take it back to your seat, and together, we all, one and the same, will declare before God, God, thank you for this wonderful gift that you gave to us so that we are saved and we can have a relationship with you and can experience love one to another. So let's all stand. 